When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody, this is Olivia, and we're back with our second episode of Season 3. Just a reminder to our listeners that we've moved to an every other week format, so from now on, episodes will be airing every other Monday. I also wanted to announce that by popular demand, we're launching a new Facebook group today for our listeners. We've gotten several messages from people wishing that there was a place to continue the conversations that Katie and I had during our episodes. So if you're looking for really interesting conversations about reclaiming women's stories and women's history, whether it's better to be forgotten or misremembered, or what a good thousand-year-old nunchuck sounds like, you can join us there at the What's Her Name Listeners Discussion Group. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a unique subscription box, inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. So, how much do you know about Trinidad? Trinidad? As in Trinidad and Tobago? Trinidad and Tobago. When I was a kid, I had a talking globe that would quiz you about the locations of places. And it would frequently ask Trinidad and Tobago. And I knew where to spin on the globe to hurry up and touch it with the magic pen. Mm. And that is all I know about Trinidad and Tobago. (laughs) So that was pretty much all I knew about Trinidad before this week as well. (laughs) So now I know some more things. As your magic globe showed you, Trinidad and Tobago are right off the coast of Venezuela in the Caribbean Sea. So in the native language, Trinidad was called the land of the hummingbird, but it was renamed by Columbus, because of course it was. Uh, It's an extremely diverse country in race and religion. And of course, their, their national instrument is the steel pan. Sometimes we call it the steel drum. Oh, yes. And it's the birthplace of calypso music. Okay, so are they two separate islands? Trinidad is a place and Tobago is a place. You're the one with the magic globe. Well, the globe would always lump them together. They're two islands that are now one country. Okay. So the woman that we're talking about today, Claudia Jones, was born in Trinidad in 1915. And she changed her name later, but she was actually born Claudia Cumberbatch. Oh. Which I, I think is the only other Cumberbatch. (laughs) <laughs> that I've ever heard. Besides Benedict? The obvious Benedict. Right. Why would you lose the name Cumberbatch? Doesn't she know that he's going to be hugely famous in the future and that might help <laughs> her be famous? Yeah, she wasn't planning ahead there. Uh, she actually did it as a self-protective disinformation measure. We'll discover why that was necessary later. Ooh, mysterious. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. So to learn more about Claudia Jones, I talked to Professor Carol Boyce-Davies. I'm Carol Boyce-Davies. I'm a professor of Africana Studies and English at Cornell University in New York. My field is African Diaspora Studies, Black Women's Writing, Black Women's Intellectual History, Black Left Feminism, Caribbean Literatures and Related Things of that nature. So Professor Carol Boyce-Davies is a really important public scholar on African-American literature. Her book, Black Women Writing and Identity, is sort of the core for anyone who's doing any work about black women writers. 
And just to note on audio, Dr. Boyce Davies was kind enough to squeeze in an interview with me while she was in Boulder for an appearance, but the only venue that we had to record was a public area in the hotel, so the recording has some background noise that might be a bit unusual. Claudia Jones is uh, probably my favorite black woman intellectual at this point in history. Uh, And for a couple of reasons, she's born in Trinidad and Tobago, where I'm from. And for a long time, I had done work on Caribbean women writers. In fact, I published a book um, in which we wanted to create space for Caribbean women's writing to come out. And in that collection, in the introduction, I talked about the fact that now we are beginning to know about black women's writing. But do we know enough about the black women who were not really creative writers, so that who are the black women intellectuals? Who are the black women radical intellectual activists who would be comparable to the men that many people know? And for a long time, I could not really find too many people, but now finding Claudia Jones, and it's really finding her, has made that process more visible. She presents, because of her race and gender as a black woman from the Caribbean, a whole different kind of reality that opens up this so-called radical feel of Marxism in a whole different direction and provides space for black women. And then once she found her, it was, she's everywhere. How have we never heard of her? How was this so hard to find her? She was a huge deal. Cool. She was really famous and just is completely erased from everything. Okay, but before we get started, I feel like we need to establish something. Caribbean or Caribbean? Caribbean. What? You said that like it's an objective I'm truth. I'm just saying what Carol Boyce Davies says. <laughs> she says Caribbean? She says Caribbean. Yeah. Okay. Caribbean it is. And it's Pirates of the Caribbean. You can't say Pirates oh, of the you're Caribbean. Right. You're right. I think people say that, though. Royal Caribbean, for example. It's not Royal Caribbean. Nope. I refuse to say Caribbean. Okay. <laughs> So she um, is born in Trinidad and Tobago in 1915. It's a time when a number of people from the Caribbean are migrating to Harlem, New York. And that period is interesting because it's right around the time when they're building the Panama Canal. And following the Panama Canal, you have a number of Caribbeans who leave from Panama and settle in New York. Her parents had already gone to the U.S. So she migrates with her family in 1924. She's about eight years old and goes to elementary school in New York and finishes junior high and high school there. And she's coming into the United States then just around the time of the Great Depression. So she realizes that although she was a smart student, options for a young black woman at that time were not really many. So she left high school and she got a job working as an assistant to a milliner, those people who make hats. Mm. But while she is in Harlem, and Harlem was that place at that time where you had many people making speeches at the corner. Street corner lecturers were quite popular. And at that time, there was a very important case taking place called the Scottsboro Boys. Scottsboro Boys was a case in which nine young boys, some of them as young as 12 years old, were accused of raping two white women in a boxcar in Alabama. It turned out, of course, it wasn't true, but throughout the 1930s, they were tried repeatedly. But at the corner of, of, street, of the street corners in Harlem, she would listen to people talking about that case and, and trying to find ways that people should be involved in trying to help free these boys. Hmm. So is she living in New York City at the same time as Lola Ridge? She is, yes. Huh. The mid-1920s in New York City, yeah. Okay. And it would have been adjacent 
to the Jewish ghetto. Okay. She found, uh, back to the story of the Scottsboro Boys, she found that the Communist Party speakers had the best explanation of why these boys were tried. And keep in mind that at that time, the NAACP was probably the only organization that would be defending a case of racism of that sort. But the, the question of going into the South and launching a trial was quite formidable. So it was the Communist Party, even though the Communist Party is seen subsequently as something to be removed from the United States and subversive and so on. It was the Communist Party that provided legal means to fight the case and actually did go south to help defend them and help free them. And this is where we have to rewind and talk about the way we talk about communism. Communism now has all of this baggage, it has all of this meaning, the mm -hmm. fear and the rhetoric and everything. None of that exists at this point. Yeah. Communism is a totally legitimate, totally normal, just one of the many other voices on the street corner mm -hmm. theory and philosophy. And these are the only people who are doing anything about the Scottsboro Boys. Mm -hmm. What is significant about her is that she does two things. She becomes a journalist. She becomes somebody who actually works in the theater as well. She actually was a friend and roommate of Lorraine Hansberry, the famous person who wrote A Raisin in the Sun. Mm -hmm. And also she begins to develop a framework, which now is seen as quite radical and progressive, but it's a framework which brought together the, this thing that Angela Davis calls woman, race, and class, the tripleness then of black women's experience. Uh, so in her framework consistently is the question of women's rights, workers' rights, she would call them, and also black people's rights. So she's there, she's working in New York, and she is creating this whole new way of thinking about these problems. She starts talking about the combination of being a woman and being black and being poor is really hampering her in ways that aren't accounted for by just one of those things. You know, people are starting to talk about racism. They're starting to talk about class. They're starting to talk about gender, but no one is talking about them together. Mm -hmm. And she starts to talk about that. And she's starting to write. She's a really excellent writer and she's writing for the newspaper. She's writing for the communist newsletters. She's just doing everything she can to try to start thinking out loud on paper about these problems. And she, she creates this framework of woman, race, class. If any of our listeners are familiar with sort of the beginnings of black feminism, mm -hmm. this is black feminism. This is the prototype, the structure that I, in 20 years of studying this, have always heard this attributed to an amazing woman named Angela Davis. Angela Davis quotes her. She quotes Claudia Jones. In essays that I have read, Claudia Jones mm -hmm. thought of this, and this is how we should be thinking about it. So now, even though people talk easily now about woman, race, and class, and see Angela Davis as like the progenitor of that framing, it was actually Claudia Jones. Yeah. And Angela does cite her. So she would look, for example, at the black woman as the breadwinner of the family. She would critique war efforts on the basis that they um, often mean that the, a government is sort of now committing more monies to an effort that means one is investing in military hardware as opposed to people sending people to school, feeding children, and so on. So she w was actually involved also in, in peace movements at the same time. But gradually over the years, she 
um, rose through the ranks of the Communist Party. She becomes the secretary of something called the Women's Commission in 1947-1948 under uh, a woman who was uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was the president of the Women's Commission. And together they traveled across the United States recruiting thousands of people to join the Women's Commission and of the Communist Party. So, of course, at this time period, any minority activists are going to be immediately surveilled by the FBI. So she gets a file opened on her pretty quickly by the FBI for this anti-racist work that she's doing. Ironically, not the communist work, because that wasn't a big deal. The exact same thing with Lola Ridge. There's this huge movement. There's all of this interesting radical thought going on all through mm-hmm. New York that's not mainstream, but it's definitely not seen as any more threatening than any other way of looking at the world. Yeah. Man, New York in the 1920s, that would be a cool place to visit in a time machine. Yes. Stuff going on. Does the rest of her life play out in New York? It does not. Huh. Not because she chose that. Oh. (laughs) Did she have to run for it? Oh, it's a whole story. Oh, yay. The surveillance uh, eventually led to her being arrested. And actually, she was arrested three times. She's known, for example, um, when she was on, on trial. She told the judge, you do not dare think that black women can think and write and speak. Mm-hmm. And that's one of her famous lines that I love. Once she was in Ellis Island under something called the Smith Act. And the Smith Act was linked to the fact that she did not have United States citizenship. Mm-hmm. She tried um, as an immigrant for many years and applied for citizenship, but she could never get it for one reason. And that one reason is that she had joined the Communist Party when she was like 18 years old. And people don't realize that in the United States citizenship definition, one has to declare that one has never been a member of the Communist Party. And even if you go through now as an adult person applying for your citizenship, there's a form you have to check that says you've never been a member of or know anybody who's been a member of the Communist Party. So she was never able to get citizenship, even though she came at the age of eight years old. So that means, of course, that when, you know, maybe as part of a protest, many of the leaders get arrested. The other leaders go to jail for six months. She can be deported. Right. And that's eventually what happens. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. So how do they do it? Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com, C-R-A-T-E.com, and use the code HERNAME, all caps, you'll get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription. It's designed for kids, but honestly, I think it's fun for adults. I enjoy the experiments. I would buy the subscription for myself. Like, I'm genuinely (laughs) considering all my kids are too old, but I might just get one anyway. (laughs) Yeah. No, I have had many moments of awe based on these subscription box for children. Wow. (laughs) Did you know that if you get a balloon and make it staticky, and then you put it next to tiny little foam balls. The foam balls will jump around and look like they're living creatures, and it's really amazing. What? No, I did not know that. Girls Can Crate taught me that. Wow. It's pretty awesome. 
No, just get yourself a subscription. I'm going to. Girls can do anything. Like, get right. themselves a subscription box for children. <laughs> exactly. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com. And when you order, make sure you use the coupon code HERNAME, all caps, so that they know we sent you. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. She's thrown in jail a few times for short periods of time. And then the thing that really gets her is on International Women's Day, she gives a speech about women's rights and peace. She's really at this point a, a huge peace activist and saying like, War has such a, a huge impact on the world and especially on women. And we know this still now that women are the ones who are usually suffering the most when war breaks out in, a, in an area. And so she gives a speech for International Women's Day about why peace is important for women's rights. And somehow they call it the overt act threatening the security of the US for which she is arrested. So she is the only black woman, if you look at the photographs in my book, you will see only black woman among the second group of communists, 15 of them being tried for ideas because they really weren't doing anything subversive. There were scholars and intellectuals talking about these ideas. She serves a year and a day in Alderson prison, and I laugh about that for two reasons. It's the same prison that people like Martha Stewart yeah. <laughs> serve time in. But also, in that same prison, they had put all the Puerto Rican independistas, the people fighting for independence mm. in Puerto Rico. So Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was also in jail. Basically, all of those famous people were in jail at the same time. Oh, how convenient. Yeah. They're like and creating said, a think tank. That's what I said. <laughs> the government was thinking that it was doing something really punitive, but they had put all yeah, these you, communists in the same... You've created a think tank. Think tank at the same time. <laughs> so Claudia was there. a lot of time on that. I know, I know. I mean, they've, they have concentrated all of the best minds of this movement ha. and given them nothing to do for long periods of time. This is a terrible idea. Cool. But she ended up um, having less time served in prison. She served only 10 months because she had a heart condition. When she was a year before graduating from high school, she developed tuberculosis and I think something like rheumatic, slash rheumatic fever. And I believe that is something that weakens the heart muscles. So she always was plagued with a heart condition. So when she was in prison, many people wrote letters saying that she should be released on health grounds. And eventually she was let out for 10 months. She's only 36 at this time, but she has a heart attack in prison. Yeah. It's not humane to be keeping her in prison with this serious heart condition that she has. And they want to deport her back to Trinidad. Mm-hmm. But Trinidad won't take her. Oh, because she's, uh, she's a troublemaker? Yeah. Wow. Well, there are two explanations. One is that Trinidad would not take her. At, at that time, Trinidad was still a British colony. The real reason was that at that time in Trinidad, there was quite a bit of union activity. And the last thing they wanted was a seasoned, well-trained communist 
organizer to be put in the middle of that. So they thought it would be safer to have her in London where they could keep an eye on her. So in 1955, she is deported to the UK. Hundreds of people come to see her off. She is sort of riding in style, right? She's being deported, but the only way to get to England at this point is still by ocean liner. And her <laughs> letters are hilarious. She's kind of quite enjoying this very posh voyage. She sees it as more like less than exile and more like an opportunity to serve in a different location. And so there's a really wonderful photographs of her on this liner. Back in the day, travel on ocean liners was quite elegant and you had to go down for dinner dressed and so on. So you have pictures of her like that. She's crossing the Atlantic, having been to jail and having been tried as a communist during that HUAC period when everybody was tried. And in London, she arrives, she leaves on December 9th on the Queen Elizabeth, ironically. And then she arrives on the 22nd. She was met by well-wishers and friends and then settled into London. And she begins to feel though that this migration to London was an opportunity to work with what was then the developing, growing Caribbean community there. So I find her interesting because technically she's somebody who has two migrations. She leaves at the age of eight to the United States and she goes to London subsequently. So she does that, completes another piece of that triangle, a triangular movement. From 1948 onwards, and we used 1948 because there was a major migration of Caribbeans on a ship called the Windrush. And the Windrush brought many Caribbeans to London to work following the war. And they were meant to help rebuild Britain, which had suffered uh, all sorts of damages under the war. And the British white public was not that hospitable to them. Often they couldn't find housing jobs, racism, and so on. There were two riots saying they should go back to where they came from, as usual, that is the way that this framed. But ironically, they were British citizens. Right. <laughs> I, that's the catch of the British, that the British are still yeah. struggling with because of colonialism. So on Claudia Jones' passport, it, it says British subject. So she's being deported from the country that she's known her entire life. She's not a citizen of the U.S., but she's lived here since she was eight. She's dedicated her whole life to trying to better the social situation um, and to her, who she sees as her people in the U.S. And now she's been kicked out and has no chance of ever coming back. I would be super angry. I would be really frustrated and, and maybe feel like just throwing up my hands and saying, fine, I guess I'm done. Mm -hmm. She arrives in London and immediately says, Look at all the work to be done. <laughs> I just am so impressed when people are able to take these changes that are just thrown at them and find a way to re-narrate that to themselves mm -hmm. so that they can make it not just bearable, but helpful, you know? And yeah. and I think I'm always wary of the, like, everything happens for a reason or the, it made you stronger or, you know, the... Right. It was meant to be so that you could learn the things and I... I think most of that is really disrespectful to say to people. But mm -hmm. I am really impressed with the way that she took being deported from everything she's worked so hard for and said, hey, look, so many new opportunities, so many new ways to change the world mm. and just jumped right in and and made herself a force to be reckoned with in London. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It sort of reminds me of Adelaide Herman in a weird way. Life throws this total change at you and you say, well... I guess that's what I'm doing. I'll make the best of it. 
Right. Yeah. This is what I'm doing now. So So I'm gonna be here I go. Really good at it. Yeah. (laughs) So they they vastly miscalculated if they thought that she was going to have less impact in London. She immediately begins to organize the British African Caribbean community. They really start fighting through legal means, through the press, saying, This is unacceptable. We have to be treated equally. And Mm -hmm. she spurs this huge movement all of a sudden. She starts the first black newspaper in England. And it's a newspaper, but it's also very much an organizing tool. So in London, she starts working with the Caribbean community. And the first thing she does um, is create a newspaper called the West Indian Gazette. They also formed an organization called CACO, which was like Council of Afro, Afri- Afro-Asian Organizations and Caribbean Organizations. The newspaper then became like a source of organizing, of doing a lot of work with Caribbean intellectuals. There were a number of writers who were coming out at that same period. So she would carry in the newspapers ads, announcements, items that have to do not just with the Black British experience, but with the Caribbean in general. Because she was so enmeshed in U.S. politics, she knew the U.S. well, and then brought that energy and experience. Most British people know who she is without knowing who she is, because the biggest thing that she did in London was to start the Notting Hill Carnival, which is one of the biggest outdoor festivals in London now, Um, a yearly festival. And It's a very interesting example of how we create narratives for one purpose and they get swiftly switched to something else that we didn't expect. So at this point, there are all of these, especially mostly men, mostly Caribbean men arriving in London. And there's a big backlash. There is a stereotype that these Caribbean men are violent, they're dangerous, they're frightening, they're aggressive. Mm-hmm. And she sees this happening and says, we have got to counter this narrative right away. We have to figure out how to show, you know, the white Londoners what we really are, what is Caribbean culture, and that we really need to show them the joy and the, the lightness and the fun of mm. this culture. And she says, I think the way to do that is to start a carnival. We're going to have a carnival where we can showcase our culture. And so they start this originally indoor carnival because it's winter (laughs) because it's england you can't have anything outdoors it's england and (laughs) it's winter but she's like we got to get on this now we need to do this right now so they hold this carnival in a big hall it's meant to show you know here's our art here's our music here's our clothes here's our food we're fun and you don't need to be scared of us yeah. And it's wildly successful. It's really, really successful. Cool. She has this beautiful quote that I just love. Her famous line for her carnival was that people's art is the genesis of their freedom. Mm-hmm. And my friends who are artists use that all the time. I love that. I think that speaks so much to what she was trying to do. She understood that the task is not, that you're not going to force people to get along. All you can do is try to share Mm. the beautiful parts of your culture and hope that they can catch that and understand it. Wow. And that's the genesis of their freedom. And that's the genesis of their freedom. 
cool. that the freedom for these Caribbean immigrants is going to come through their art and through sharing that art and their their narrative of who they are. Cool. So ironically, that was quite effective in offsetting the stereotypes of the angry, violent, aggressive Caribbean men to the mm-hmm. point that now we have a new stereotype of Caribbean people, which is the fun, oh. fun-loving party people. Right. And I, I can't help but think that this may be where that stereotype starts. That right. actively trying to counter one false narrative, you're imposing another false narrative yeah. on top. Oh wow. And I think I've I think I've mentioned this, I'm sure I have because it's my favorite TED talk ever. But uh, the author Chimamanda Adichie gives a TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story. And mm-hmm. it's all about the problem with stereotypes isn't that they're not true, it's that they're incomplete. That mm-hmm. you this might be true of this person, but if you only have one story about a whole people, it's always going to be hugely misinformed. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, she makes such a valiant effort to counter that story with this other beautiful story of her culture and that that can then be co-opted in so many other different directions by other people with different agendas. Yeah. Towards the end of her life, she met Chairman Mao. She went to China, met Chairman Mao. I know. And she interviewed his, um, the wife of Sun Yat-sen, mm-hmm. Madam Sun Ching Ling. And then she also went to the Soviet Union as an, a guest of Soviet women. And, um, and then from there went to Japan. And in Japan was part of a group that did a platform to do the final resolution about against nuclear weapons and hydrogen bomb. And she's the person who stood up and made that declaration. Uh, a lot of people felt at a certain point, and it happens all the time, I think this is another period when people just felt that the U.S. was not delivering on its promise of what it intended to be and decided to look elsewhere. So a number of them went to Ghana because Ghana was under former President Nkrumah who led Ghana to independence. was like a place that was opening up for possibilities for black peoples in a much more progressive way. So people like Maya Angelou went and lived in in Ghana for a while. And she was actually there when a number of other people came and functioned as a host to them, people like Malcolm X and so on. Claudia also met Martin Luther King Jr. And it's important to say that on his way to Oslo to receive his Nobel Peace Prize, he passed through. She met him. She also was photographed with W.B. Du Bois. He was going to Ghana too. She's a big deal in the Communist wow. Party. She's meeting everyone. I mean, you you can't just walk in and meet Mao. Right. Right. And regardless of what we think about Mao now, that's a big deal that right. she was famous and important enough to do this world tour. She's on a global stage. Yeah. Trying to work with all these other leaders to create a peaceful world. All of these people are traveling to meet her. Mm-hmm. Everyone who is traveling to sort of start this new experiment finds a way to come and meet her. Wow. It seems like a really international life. In the end, 
her heart got the better of her. Mm. And in 1964, on Christmas Eve, she died in her bed from a heart attack. The way they found out about her death was that she was scheduled to go to somebody's party and she didn't show up and they wondered what had happened. Somebody went to her house. It was locked and so on, but broken, and she had passed already. I gather she was in bed with her glasses on reading, yeah. so she died in her sleep. And quite young, you know, she was 49. When I interviewed people, it was kind of fresh, even though it had been a number of years. And all the people I interviewed, many of them, would, their eyes would cloud up because mm. they said she was so important. I think one of the best examples of how important she was and how shocking it is that we've forgotten her is where she's buried. She's buried in Highgate Cemetery, which is Mm. It's the most famous cemetery in London. Everybody who's everybody is buried in Highgate. Mm -hmm. And she is buried directly to the left of Karl Marx. (laughs) That is amazing. (laughs) Wow. The point about Highgate that is so significant, although it's a cemetery, and there are a couple of cemeteries which have that kind of iconic meaning, where people go just for tours as part of their visit to London. And this is actually how I found her, because I was trying to do research on her, and people kept saying, oh, she's buried next to Marx. So one day I went on a tour of Highgate Cemetery, and the tour actually took me to the older side of Highgate. And I was on, on that tour finding people who invented a tennis racket and all kinds of things mm. like that. And then I asked the tour guide, where is the Karl Marx bus? Because that was my um, landmark to finding her. And he said, oh, no, it's in the new apartment. <laughs> so I abandoned the door. And when I walked to the gate, the guy said, oh, yeah, you can find it. Just follow that lane and you, you can't miss it. And of course you can't. It's about 11 feet tall. And to the left of his massive bust on a flat stone is this black woman. And her name is identified. And it says that she was a valiant fighter for her people, her black people. My colleagues who are pretty radical types, like, how did she get to be very left of Marx? <laughs> and I think in, in my sense, it was kind of like a coding um, that was put in place for her to be there so that, that we could really think of more expansive ways of engaging the world. That's how I see it. Every time I'd go to, to London, I'd go to Highgate, to her gravesite, and Karl Marx's bus would always have flowers underneath, always. You know, I would always take flowers and put on her stone. I was complaining, like, oh, Karl Marx always has flowers. And then I was at a conference in Leicester, and I mentioned what I just said to you. And one of the women said, why not plant a rose bush there? And I did. One day I went to one of the florist shops, and I bought a beautiful copper mm. orangey rose that I thought looked like her, and took it back to Highgate and when I got to the gate the guy said well we're closed now one of the gardeners and I handed it to him through the bars and I said can you plan that for me at Claudia Jones gravesite she's right next to Karl Marx and I said she's the person who founded the London Notting Hill Carnival and it was a young man he said well if she did that she deserves this to be planted 
and the, you know the British are so meticulous about maintaining gardens yeah. and so on so they actually do take care of the roses and make yeah. sure it's okay so I'm really happy also another nice thing happened Highgate they have like one of those fold over maps that oh, you yeah. can see who you want to see when I finished writing left of Karl Marx I sent a copy to the friends of Highgate last time I went back and she's on the tour so for me it's like a recovery it's that finding that Caribbean intellectual responsible visiting her grave right and a lot of people are writing about her now how cool it just keeps coming up in all these episodes the importance of having a champion yeah of the right champion at the right time yep yeah and i think you know that claudia jones has such an important point of view for us to pay attention to now you know that we have solidified these narratives for now of what communism is of what the civil rights movement looked like where and that they were so wildly varied and different and yeah that that these things didn't mean what they mean and that communism doesn't mean the things that we make it mean in our James Bond movies, right? And I think Mm -hmm. right now we're right on this verge of maybe starting to talk about it in a way that shifts out of the sort of fear-mongering McCarthyistic view and can grapple with the real good and bad things. You know, the way that this movement started in America and what they were really trying to accomplish is so different than the narrative that was imposed on them later. Yeah. She still ended up, I think, you know, living a certain life of intensity that allowed her to get a lot accomplished in a short space of time, mm-hmm. but also to live, live a life quite rich and full. <laughs> that, you know, she wasn't just an activist running around, but she was also somebody who had a life and did things and did her hair and dressed up and went out. So for me, that question of that balance. That she still lived a beautiful life. Hmm, that's awesome. Yeah, I I like when activists get to be happy too. Yeah. (laughs) Put on high heels and go to a party. You know, they don't get destroyed by the world. Yeah, she she may not have practiced good self-care when it came to her heart condition. But she seems Mm. to have practiced good emotional self-care. So we can learn that from her. (laughs) Fight the battle that you feel called to fight. And then go out to dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Huge thanks to Professor Carol Boyce-Davies. Thank you also to Professor Marcia Douglas and to the English Department at the University of Colorado Boulder for helping to arrange this interview. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support more episodes of What's Your Name Podcast, please visit our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com and click donate. If you want to learn more about Claudia Jones, her writing, her activism, or the Notting Hill Carnival, visit our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com for photos, links to Dr. Boyce Davies' books, and more. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. Music for this episode was provided by Daniel Henderson and his big band, Crosscurrent, Jennifer and Darren Duerden, and Jeff Kuno. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. If you enjoyed today's episode, if you would take a minute to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, it makes a huge difference in our ability to reach new listeners and bring you more women making history. The woman that we're talking about today was born in Trinidad. Okay. When? Mm, 1915 is about the time. Okay. (laughs) Please leave that in. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then leave that in. <laughs> can we start doing outtakes at the end? Yeah. I think we can. I think we could. The Guggenheim winners. All right, that can or be Or maybe just time. leave outtakes right in the middle. <laughs> this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle, and What's Your Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson. Communism. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>